Hey, welcome to Table Flippers Podcast, Ministry of Greater Worship Christian Church in Lancaster, California. I am your host, Apostle Robert Enos. This is where we talk about the issue the church faces and how the church should respond to those issues. Here we will talk about doctrine, theology, politics, social and cultural issues, and how the church is to deal with these things. So get ready for a large dose of truth and get ready for the tables to be flipped. Here at Table Flippers, table flipping is what we do. Hello, great to be back with you. I really, truly appreciate each and every one of you tuning in to these podcasts. I really hope that you're being blessed by them and you're getting something out of them. I certainly am. I'm really enjoying myself, especially knowing that all of you good people, you wonderful people out there are listening, and hopefully I can bring something to the table to edify and enrich your life. I know I get hard-hitting. I know I can uh, slam some things, especially when it comes to the church world, because that's my passion. No, not to slam, but to help and to bring healing and to help set things in order so that we can be blessed of God and really see not just the church world change, but the world around us change. And um, as I say in my book, you can't change what you won't face. So let's face these things. Uh, Yes, it gets frustrating. Yes, I might even cause a little anger to rise up inside of you. But if I'm telling the truth, as hard-hitting as it may be or as soft as it may be, the truth is still the truth. And if it's the truth and we find things that we need to fix, well, then let's just simply fix them. Let's deal with it. doesn't really matter how hard-hitting somebody might be if it's the truth let's fix it and i have found one of the reasons why i've adopted just just saying like it is and just being black and white and hitting it hard is because i've learned that people we want it soft and we want it easy because it's not as hard on our own soul our emotions however when it's soft and it's easy we rarely make the changes because it's soft and it's easy. It's not until things become real clear, black and white, hard hitting and uncomfortable that we wanna make the changes. And so let's just go in and get it done and get beyond it. As you know, I've been going through my book, A Time for Transition. You can get that book, go to gwcclancaster.org and I'm sure you can find the link there on our website. But today we're going to be dealing with chapter four called The Donkey Hunter. We've been looking at at my book and comparing it to what's going on in the world today. We started looking at Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and we looked at Samuel, and then we looked at Samuel and his two sons, Joel and Abijah, and then finally how through Uh, the wickedness of these sons, first of Eli and then even of Samuel, it caused the people of God to turn away from God, turn away from uh, wanting God to be their king. And what we find them saying to Samuel is, make us a king like all the other nations. And that's really heartbreaking because here's the people of God who are supposed to be a special treasure, a royal priesthood, supposed to be above, not beneath, the head, not the tail, now saying, we just want to be like all the other nations. We just want to be like them. We want to have a king like them. We're rejecting you, 
Samuel from leading us. So in reality, we're rejecting God from being king. And that's what God told Samuel. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. So give them a king. So chapter 4 deals with Saul leading up from the time that we're introduced to Saul all the way to the time that he's recognized or at least prophesied as king. And there's a reason why I call this the docking hunter. Let me just read the first few pages from this so you kind of get the idea. As we've been looking at the spiritual and political changes in Israel, beginning with Eli, we realized that the political changes and the spiritual changes were very much connected. What was happening spiritually soon affected the politics of the nation as well. There is something that we must realize in our modern age. What is going on spiritually will eventually manifest in every other area of culture and society. Often people get it backwards. It is not politics that affects the spiritual nature of our society as much as the spiritual nature affects the political realm of the society. Where you have corruption in the church, you will soon have corruption in government as well as in business and the home. A weak church always leads to a corrupt society. Eli allowed corruption to come into the priesthood because of his careless attitude regarding his sons and their sin. This gave rise to Samuel. Samuel was a great prophet and judge, but he failed with his sons in a similar fashion as Eli. As great as Samuel was as a prophet, he did what Eli had done with the position of authority entrusted to him. Samuel allowed corruption to enter into the system of the judges, the political system. Samuel himself was not corrupt, but his two sons were. As judges, the sons of Samuel perverted justice for their own gain. This led to the people wanting to replace God as king with a king like all other nations. God gave his people what they wanted and chose Saul to be the first king of Israel. This is a clear picture of what happens in a society when the church refuses to deal with the sin and corruption in its ranks. The people of the church, as well as society in general, will reject even the good that is in the church if the sin is not dealt with. Else they will become lethargic towards the sin in their leaders, giving them an excuse to remain in sin themselves. This, unfortunately, is all too common in our day and age. Saul, the donkey hunter. 1 Samuel 9, verses 3-5 through 5 says, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Please take one of the servants with you, and arise, go look for the donkeys. So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. They passed through the land of Sha'alim, and they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. When they had come to the land of Zuph, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. It is interesting to note that on the way to being the first king of Israel, Saul was chasing donkeys. This may not seem imperative to the overall story about the future king of Israel, but God thought it important enough to include it in his eternal word. This portion is important in that it sets the stage for the rest of the story. It helps us to understand what type of man Saul was. 
Saul was not a bad person. He was chosen by God to be the king that would replace God himself as king to Israel. He, we do not always look at it in this light, but that is what happened. The people wanted to replace God, the heavenly king, with a man, an earthly king. Simply put, the people rejected God as their king. 1 Samuel 8, 7 says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. We hear stories all the time of people being replaced on the job, and as they are about to leave, they are expected to train their replacements. This is, in essence, what was taking place. The people no longer wanted God and his representatives to reign over them, so they asked for a king to rule over them like the nations around them. It was God that found Saul to be king over the people. It was God who had to locate the one that would replace him as king. He found Saul, who was the best person in all of Israel for that position at that time. God did not look for someone that did not have the potential to be king. Instead, he found the best that Israel had to offer at that time to serve him and the people as the king of Israel. Saul had the makings of a great king that could serve God, the people, and their purposes very well. God was not vengeful in his thinking when he found Saul. As a matter of fact, it was the exact opposite. God found the best person for the job, knowing that even the best they had to offer still paled in comparison to the leadership he provided through the system he developed. We are introduced to Saul as he was out looking for his father's donkeys that had wandered off. After three days of searching, Saul is ready to return home, concerned that his father would become worried about him. Keep in mind that this is going to be the first king of Israel. The soon-to-be king of Israel was looking for his father's donkeys that had wandered off. We have no record of how these donkeys had escaped, but one thing we know for sure, someone was not doing their job. Someone failed to watch over the donkeys as they should have. This story shows that no matter why these animals escaped, Saul and his servant were looking for them for three days. After three days of searching, Saul and his servant were still empty-handed. Why did it take so long for someone to realize that the donkeys were missing? Why did Kish, Saul's father, have to tell Saul to go looking for them? Why did not Saul know about these missing donkeys before this and bring them back much sooner? We may never know the answer to these questions this side of heaven, but these issues are valid when looking at the future king. These donkeys were Saul's responsibility simply because Saul was to inherit everything from his father. These were Saul's donkeys as well, not merely his father's donkeys. This portion of the story gives us a glimpse into the quality and character of Saul. Does that part of the story reveal the making of a great king? Even still, he was the best Israel had to offer. After searching for the donkeys for three days, Saul is ready to go home. Saul says to the servant, Come, let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. Saul became more concerned about the feelings of his father than his financial well-being. These donkeys were not pets, but represented the business that Kish was involved in, and these donkeys were part of the family business. Saul knew that his father would become worried, and his and this bothered Saul to the point of wanting to give up on their quest to find the donkeys and to restore the family business. Saul's heart and mind were fixed on the immediate moment, not the future. 
Saul was focused on how his absence was making his father feel at the moment, not what the loss of the donkeys might mean to the family financially. This is another problem that arose then and has plagued the modern church. Far too many church leaders are more concerned with the feelings of their congregation than their overall well-being. The politically correct mindset that has permeated our culture and society is alive and well in the church today. Many church leaders refuse to speak about turning from sin and naming it, living righteously, walking in purity, etc., because it may offend somebody. Recently, I read an article that a president of a Christian college wrote to the entire student body of his school. It came after a student approached him because this student was offended at the speaker in the chapel when he spoke about sin and the consequences of sin. The student wanted the president to stop bringing these types of speakers into the school. You know, the kind of speakers that tell the truth. I was happy to read that the president of the school dealt with this mentality in a straightforward, firm manner. We as the church, especially church leaders, must stop worrying about the immediate feelings of the people around us and start telling the whole truth regardless of who gets offended. Our offensive truth may actually keep people from going to hell and being eternally separated from God. Like Saul, many refuse to look at the big picture regarding others' overall well-being. Now that was, uh, as I said, the first few pages from chapter 4 in my book. If we keep reading the story of Saul from this point on, remember Saul wants to go back home. He hasn't found the donkeys. He's discouraged, worried about what his dad might feel. And this servant that's with him says, wait a minute, let's go talk to the prophet um, and see if he can't tell us where the donkeys are and tell us what to do. Saul had no money, had nothing to bring the prophet that was customary in that day. So when you went to visit the man of God, you brought a gift. He had no gift. He had nothing to bring him. But the servant had a little bit of money and said, I'll give him this money, this little bit of silver. So it's an interesting part of the story because Saul didn't really know who Samuel was. Saul, had, it didn't even seem like he heard of Samuel, but his servant did. The servant knew what town he was in, and the servant was had a little bit of money to give. Saul had no money, nothing, no gift. So this servant was much better prepared naturally or physically to go meet the prophet, but he also was more prepared uh, in the sense of his understanding of who prophet Samuel was, where he was, his abilities, and all of that. And Saul just seemed to have no clue whatsoever. And it's interesting because we see, well, then why, uh, why was Saul chosen to be king and not this servant? Well, it's a sad truth. It really is a sad truth. But people that are in those lower states aren't always recognized by, the, by people, not, not saying by God, and accepted by people. So Saul had the look and he had the potential. He really had the potential because let's face it, he was at least sharp enough to pick that servant to go with him to look for the donkeys. So he knew how to put good people around him. And then later on, which we'll probably get to in one of these chapters, one of these podcasts, how uh, he even brought David close to him because David was was wise in battle and also anointed in worship to drive away the demonic, which Saul desperately needed at that time. So Saul knew how to put good people around him. That's one reason why he was chosen king. But it's still sad that Saul came from an affluent family 
a powerful family and he didn't even know who Samuel was, wasn't prepared to go and meet with him, wasn't even prepared for a long journey. After three days, he's worried about, oh, my daddy's gonna be upset, let's just go home, empty-handed, even though those donkeys represented the family business. So they go. But I wanna point something out for all of us, especially church leaders today. Here's a quote from my book. Those with understanding will seek the direction that only the prophets can give them. I'm going to say it again. Those with understanding will seek the direction that only the prophets can give them. God's bringing about and raising up the prophets, a new era of prophets. I know we've always had prophets in the church, but what he's doing is cleaning house and bringing and, and releasing the true Samuel-like prophets in the church that he can trust to the point that not one of their words will fall to the ground. They'll know what to say, when to say it, how to say it, to whom to say it, and they will not falsely represent our God, but they will righteously represent our God. God's raising up those types of prophets. Let me, let me read this portion from my book. Each believer in Jesus has the ability to hear the voice of God for themselves. However, prophets can most often give clearer and deeper understanding and direction. Saul's servant appeared to understand this, while Saul seemed to be oblivious to this truth. It is sad, but many in our, of our present leaders think that they do not need the input of others, including the prophetic voices around them. Think of what the church could become if we all utilize the gifts and ministries of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastors, and teachers. What would the church look like if all the five expressions of Jesus were alive and well in our churches? Think about that for just a moment. How much further could we be? How much more power could we operate in? What kind of change can we bring to the culture and society around us if we didn't just pull from the pastor, but we actually pulled from the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and teacher, all five expressions of who Jesus is. What if we had those in full operation in all of our churches? What if we started to look like Jesus more and more and more? Not just a person, not just the person in the pulpit. We think, oh, that's the one that looks like Jesus, so we're just going to pull on him or her only. No, what if we had the apostles fully functioning in our church, the prophets fully functioning, the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers fully functioning, all five expressions of Jesus, we would be much further than we presently are. Now, I want to compare Saul and his servant here for just a moment. Again, if you read that whole story about Saul and his servants and looking for the donkeys, finding Samuel, and getting a word from Samuel, you'll, you'll find that Saul wanted to return home without the donkeys. The servant wanted to continue searching. Saul did not know of Samuel the prophet, but the servant knew of Samuel the prophet. Saul did not prepare for the journey, but the servant was better prepared for the journey. Saul did not have anything to bring as a gift to the prophet. The servant had one-fourth of a shekel of silver to bring to the prophet. Not much, but he at least had something. Saul cared more for the immediate feelings of his father than for his financial stability. 
The servant cared about the financial status of his master. And Saul did not care for his financial future and inheritance where the servant cared for the future financial stability and his master's family. So the servant was wiser than Saul. Again, at least Saul had the wisdom to choose this particular servant to go with them. And it's a good thing that he did because the story may have been uh, radically different had he not. Let me read another portion from my book. It is unfortunate, but this story could be written about many church leaders today. Like Saul, many look good and pastoral on the outside, but the inward potential was never developed as it should have been. They look good in the suit, but seem to be concerned with what the people think of them more than looking out for the future of the people of the church. Just as with the king, church leaders are required to make difficult decisions every day. Many of those decisions will have immediate consequences as well as long-term consequences. Far too many leaders look only at the immediate impact as they disregard the long-term effects. I've seen this happen in the, in the church world. Like I said, I, I grew up in the church. And I'm very familiar with this church that many, many years ago, they wanted to expand the church building and the church sites. So they took out a big loan from the bank and they started on this building project to build a gymnasium, classrooms, uh, expand the sanctuary of the church, and really just beautify the rest of the building. So it was a big undertaking, and the pastor at the time that was kind of spearheading this, after they got the money, they got into a lot of debt, and they started this slow process of building this church out in this manner. Well, he decided that he heard the voice of God tell him to go to another church. So he, he resigned and he left. He just left. And in this particular denomination, uh, that, that that church is part of, that is normal. As a matter of fact, statistically, pastors only stay in a church leadership role like that three to five years in this particular denomination. And in its 70 years history, that one particular church had only two pastors in 70 years that stayed longer than the five-year max on, on those statistics. That's how sad it was. So, Anyways, this pastor leaves this church right in this middle of putting this church in debt and this big building project. And if you are familiar with uh, the way churches function and, and such, when a pastor leaves the church, often many of the church members leave as well. Not necessarily to follow the pastor always, because sometimes he goes to another state. But they just leave the church because their heart was tied more to that pastor than the actual building. So the pastor leaves, leaves them with all this debt, leaves them in the middle of a big building project. Many of the people that were paying off the debt leave because the pastor left. Now the church is basically running on a skeleton crew, if you will, and they didn't have for many, many years the finances to finish the project and pay off the loan. And this was heartbreaking and sad because for many years, very little was actually done to that church. Now, it, they finally did get it done, but the that church went through several pastors before it was done. Now, this is what's so sad to me, is when leadership, again, they got into debt, they got this building project up off the ground, and then they leave. 
In other words, they, they were able to see a vision and, and get into that momentary, right now kind of mentality. This is going to, I don't know, make me look good. This is going to really wow the denomination heads. I don't know what was going through his mind, especially when he left. Oh, the Lord spoke to me and told me to get out of here. I mean, come on, really? God's going to tell you first to get into that kind of debt and then walk out on that kind of debt and walk out and leave the people to do not only your job, but to pay off that debt with no leadership? Because even if they had another pastor come in literally that very next week after he resigned, it takes often years to really get established and motivated and moving and win the hearts of the people. Can you imagine coming into that mess of seeing this half-built church and then, you know, um, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in debt because the other guy just walked out in the middle of it? I mean, that's really what's going on in our church world today. And, and it's very difficult for me as now a church, a leader in the modern church to have any kind of really respect and honor for that kind of nonsense and that mentality because it's dishonoring and it's, and it's, it's unre, disrespectful first to God and dishonoring to God and then God's people. He started this thing. He should have stayed at least long enough to see it through. He got the church in the debt. He should have saw it through until the church was out of debt and that building project was finished. I just don't understand that jump in and jump out, jump in and jump out. Three to five years, uh, many pastors in many denominations, that's as five years is the max. Again, do you, do you know how wrong and disgusting that is? Do you know how crazy that is? And, and here in this situation, back to Saul and his servant, servant was better prepared than Saul. Saul was the one that was marked to be king. Thank God Saul had the servant. And I, I, I don't want to take that from him. But, you know, the servant was looking pretty good. But at least the servant was sharp enough to not just prepare it, but take Saul to the right people, the premier prophet of Israel at the time, Samuel, to receive the word of the Lord, to tell us where do we need to go? What do we need to do? How do we need to get there? And as the story goes on, and we'll find this out, Saul got a fantastic story, direction, and the donkeys were found. But please, pastors, we got to stop being so concerned with the immediate feelings of the people and go with that, like that's the most important, and then throw away their future. Saul was ready to do that. My dad is going to be really worried about us even though losing all those donkeys could be financially heartbreaking or financially terrible. But let's worry about his feelings. And we do that often in the church. And what it really comes down to, pastors, let's be honest, is you, me, we, it's not about their feelings, but our feelings. It's about us looking bad in their eyes, and we can't handle that. I must, once made a statement at a, at a group one time, and um, what this group was was a kind of a political type of group, and there was hardly any pastors there. There was me, there was four pastors there, and they're all from my church, so there was no other pastors from other churches there. Oh, I take it back, one other pastor from one church, so only two churches were represented by pastors, and there was no other pastors, and I, and I took, they asked me to say a few things, and and, uh, and address that. Why aren't pastors coming out? And I, I just was honest. I said, because pastors are egotistical. 
I said, I, I could fill this room with pastors. I can get more pastors here. But what you would have to do is make it all about them, give them the mic, put them in the spotlight, build them up, make sure their face is on the flyer and their name is in big red letters, then they'll show up. But to show up and to support a political move or any other move, even a church move, that they're not being highlighted? Nah, pastors don't do that because they're too egotistical. Their egos won't let them do that. But if you stroke their egos and you play to their egos, they'll be there. They'll be your bigger, biggest supporters. And really what it comes down to is they're not supporting diddly squat except themselves and their ego. I've been around enough pastors for the last literally 50 years that I know this to be true. And I'm not going to say all pastors. There's a few good pastors out there. But it's so sad that it's just a mere few. Most of them are so egotistical that you have to make it about them before they will be part of anything. And this is just true. It's just true. Call, try, try it. Call a city prayer meeting together and, and contact all the pastors. And then give them a date and say, we're just going to get together as pastors and leaders and pray and see how many of them show up. But then do the same type of thing, but say, now we want you to come up, get the mic, say a few words and lead us in prayer. Oh, they'll show up then. How do I know this? Uh, We've done it. It's happened and it's sad and it's sickening and it's disgusting because pastors are so egotistical, unfortunately. And so church people, listen, I, I, I honestly, thank God I'm a church leader and I just have my church and my people and we love God and we're, we're growing and we're moving, we're changing lives and, and we're getting out into the uh, community in a radical way. We're getting involved in politics in a radical way and things are beginning to shift and change all around us. But those of you who go to a church with these egotistical pastors, man, I, I really honestly feel sorry for you because honestly, when it comes right down to it, You don't matter to them. What matters to them is themselves and being pumped up, pumped up and being put on display in a good way. They love the limelight. They love their names and lights. And why are they doing it? Then you might ask, why are they pastors then? Well, because they couldn't make it entertainment. They weren't that good. (laughs) so they decided to become a pastor it's the same reason why i believe many people get involved in politics they weren't they weren't um uh, talented enough for entertainment so they became a politician i hope i'm wrong but i've seen this literally for 50 years and um i don't think i'm so wrong on it i've seen it over and over and over and over again so it's time for us church leaders to stop being sauls and start actually being more like this servant knowing what to do, when to do it, and how to do it, and being more concerned with the people around us than ourselves. Thank you for joining us here at Table Flippers. I would love to hear from you. You can find my contact information at www.gwcclancaster.org. That's gwcclancaster.org. Please let us know how we are doing. I look forward to hearing your thoughts and comments. Have a fantastic day.